Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. I I have hit the big red button. The the big red button that both of us have on our desk, which just says podcast. <laughs> that's yeah. I have I have a I have a, a bigger, scarier red button that's behind. Like there's like a bunch of ex-Soviet guards, and it just says in case of Darren Lynn Bowsman. I I really think that in 2022 we have moved past the need for Darren Lynn Bowsman. Darren Lynn Bowsman. Has, is is a ghoul summoned from the very darkest <laughs> recesses of the new metal cultural imagination? And if and if like the emo and new metal revival continues, um, we will we will collectively need to band together against the dark demon that is Darren Lynn Bowsman. I I'm I'm looking forward to like a a statement from everyone uh, ranging as far as the insane clown posse to the Teamsters condemning. Uh, the summoning of Darren Lynn Bowsman. <laughs> um, oh, hello, everybody. <laughs> uh, just just casually here um, in 2022, we we have we are back recording our first episode of of this brand new year, and we are continuing. We are continuing with our month on music. Um, I am I'm John, known as the Liquid Guy, joined as always. By my friend and the co-ghost of the show, Ash, how are you doing? Um, I was doing really good, and then we decided to do an episode on Repo, the genetic opera. Um, just just a lot going on here, folks. Just just a there's. A, I was saying to Ash before we started recording that, like, normally when we when we watch a film, you know, I take some time, I gather my thoughts, and like, I come up with like. Where do I sit with this? But I, I everything's going to be a bit raw today. I, I still feel like I'm processing. Um, and really, I can't think of a better way to kind of push the process forward than for the first time in 2022, I get to ask my dear friend, Ash, would you mind telling me, telling everybody listening, Darren Lynn Bowsman's film, Repo, the Genetic Opera. What is it about? I really, truly wish that this was a video uh, show because the smile I have right now. (laughs) 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 All right, in we go. A movie about the opioid crisis, the failed healthcare system, and a cultural moment so hungry for meaning that it doesn't even realize that it's eating its own hands shouldn't have been this tame. This should have been the relative shrieking catharsis of carving Slayer into your forearm on a lunch break, not a placid meandering through a Spencer's gifts. Maybe it's the historical vantage point that I'm writing from. The scent of wildfires on the air, a for-profit plague, heat waves for Christmas. But this gore is gutless. I wanted to laugh, to dance, to maybe even enjoy a song. But the wind was knocked out of me. Not like a punch. More like a lover, leaning their lips to my ear and whispering. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, 4.9 million liters of crude oil are spilled into U.S. waters each year. Have you seen the picture of a Kemp's Ridley sea turtle choking on sludge from the Deepwater Horizon spill? It was the last thing I saw that made my heart race. My eyes darken, my teeth soften, I become that much more servile for having considered you. 
I can't let you into my heart. Not because of what you are, but because I've seen what you could yet be. I could say something clever. Maybe something about how the long memory of the Red Scare in Hollywood still keeps filmmakers tame. Or how the self-censoring behavior outlined in manufacturing consent is just as real for artists as it is for journalists. But the earth here is sour, and we have a deeper plowing ahead of us. Tarkovsky suggested that the purpose of art was to harrow the soul, render it capable of turning to good, and prepare one for death. In ways this film was never intended for, it succeeded. <laughs> Through nothing more than my own death <laughs> Through... <laughs> Through nothing more than my own death drive adjacent urge to squeeze meaning from asbestos, I understand a little better how the soil of the soul is tilled. I don't care whose severed face you're wearing. I just want you to be so honest that you scream as we discuss Repo, the genetic opera. Oh, this... This, this movie, this, okay, okay. Um, all right, I, I think, I think I should probably, um, kind of preface by saying that, like, uh, so I didn't, I didn't see this film when it came out. Like, basically nobody did, right? No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, we can, we can talk about the, the difference between this film's budget and its gross box office, but it, 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 it was seen by a very select handful and it's slowly kind of built an audience over the past like decade. Um, I watched it very recently and, and there is, there is a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. So shall we begin by entering the Formalism Zone. Hell yes, yes. We need to do some genetic formalism. Okay, where, where, should, we, where should we start? Where should we begin? Well, as anyone discussing new metal must start, we should begin by talking about the Opry. Oh, yeah, let us, let us, <laughs> let us go, let us go and hear a story. Because this is an opera, right? This is, this is... The the writer is extremely insistent that this this be referred to as an opera. It is not a it is not as you might think. Watching it a a a rock musical um, with <laughs> with I would say two arguably three actually good songs. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I I just think that's the truth. But this is this is an opera. Why why do you think it's um, why do you think it's important that, that the writer has put so much kind of emphasis on it being operatic? Well, I, I first want to say that it's very bold of you to assume that there are songs in Repo the Genetic Opera. Um, but after that, uh, so I, I think the, the distinction between opera and musical is really important. Uh, just as like a technical thing, you can talk in a musical. Um, in, in the operatic form, there are no spoken lines. Outside of this thing called recitative, which is, it's it's basically like speaking kind of musically. It's like somewhere between like a slightly melodic rap and spoken word poetry, if you want like a contemporary analog. But that, that that's how you get away with talking in an opera without technically talking. There's a bit of that in here, uh, maybe more than a bit. A, a bit? <laughs> um, but I think... <laughs> 
what and this develops so this develops out of a two-man play called the necromancer's debt which darren lynn bowsman turns into a 10-minute effectively what is a proof of concept for the movie it gets funded by lionsgate for like five hundred thousand, which that is that is peanuts for a movie like even even for like lionsgate and blumhouse netflix and amazon these people that just grind out junk films like this is the budget is very very small Well, but uh, yeah, what are, what are your thoughts about the uh, operatic form being used here? Well, well, let's um, I let's I just kind of checked some facts and figures, so let's kind of clarify this a little bit, which is that mm-hmm. uh, it does start as the Necromerchant's debt, which is a, t- a, a which is ten minutes. It's a ten minute piece that two guys used to do at clubs, which mm-hmm. which then became a sixty minute one act thing, uh, a show. And then it became a full-length show uh, that, like, did a few, a few kind of like minor theaters. Bowsman, who's been super into like immersive theater experiences, sees it. He makes the um, he makes the the, the ten-minute uh, teaser film, which um, stars Shawnee Smith. And I would have been really excited to see the full-length film with Shawnee Smith in it. Um, <laughs> that would have, that would have been great. And he does pitch it to Lionsgate, and they give him eight and a half million dollars. Oh, okay, okay. Um, it it has a very limited theatrical release, and then like tries to make its money back through like DVDs and tours and screenings. Um, the reason I think it's super important that it gets called an opera, and this is maybe my big criticism of the entire thing, is that uh, the term carries with it a kind of cultural capital, and mm-hmm. to call something an opera allows it's it's like a semantic shorthand right so if you call something a musical that immediately has its own kind of connotations but opera carries with it its own it a kind of cultural weight just as a term just as a designator and yes there are technical reasons why you can why you can call this an opera which is fine we don't need to get too bogged down in that but uh, and this is the big problem with a lot of Bowsman's Saw films is that they it, it allows you to use the aesthetics of those connotations without actually understanding how to put all of that on screen in a way that makes sense. Yes, sense. yes. Um, I, I, I absolutely agree. And and I think this brings us up brings up a bigger point, which is that this is um, this is. Um, um th- this is a m- <laughs> this is this is this is a, a mess <laughs> this 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 weird steampunk goth dystopian sci-fi rock opera is a little confused in what it's okay so so like how how do you <laughs> How do you how do you kind of like understand this on a kind of cinematic level? Let's not get bogged down in we're not music theorists, right? We are with 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 film critics. What do, what do you think about this on just on the level of of narrative cinema? So you know how you and I, uh, in the course of recording this episode so far, have just kind of had to pause a few times and let our minds just kind of reset. As if, as if we're a Lovecraftian protagonist trying to imagine a fourth dimensional shape. Um, that's how that's how I think of this movie. But instead of a fourth dimensional shape, it's just an, the clumsiest theoretically possible film. Like from 
from kind of the standpoint of, of cinema and narrative and, and attempting to communicate what's going on in the world of the film and having any kind of consistency, like, I mean, I, we've recorded 180 question mark episodes of the show now, and I am nothing if not notorious for like letting that stuff slide in the sake of some kind of greater asbestos squeezing meaning. Um, but with this movie, it's like all of our character relations, the world in which they're in, outside of the most basic facts, you know, you know like like Anthony Head is playing Nathan, the father of Shiloh, and they have a conflict. Like outside of just that kind of like boilerplate, I have no idea what's going on in this movie. <laughs> like I, I, I'm genuinely struggling to sort of put across like that on just on a very kind of basic structural level almost every choice that can be made when you're putting together like a narrative sequence of images every choice that they that they use is the wrong one <laughs> like like yes um there's 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 a an excellent video about this um by uh the brilliant laura crone who's a youtube video essayist which we will include in the show notes um, and they brought up something that was the one of the first things that I thought about, which is about the character of the gravedigger. Um, so the gravedigger has uh, an introductory song where Shiloh meets them in a graveyard. And there, are, I'm, I'm only going to talk about one aspect of this song, which makes no fucking sense, <laughs> which is diegetically in the scene, singing the song, the grave, uh, the grave robber decides to basically do pay homage to drowning pools. Let the bodies hit the floor, um, and and <laughs> and in universe, whilst doing something that is very clearly established to be massively illegal, s- screams and just starts bringing loads of attention to themselves. So they have to literally run away from armed police who've been ordered to shoot them on sight. Um, this never gets brought up. This is completely the opposite of how this character behaves through the rest of the film. And this is the way that you decide to introduce a point of view. <laughs> like, like everything about this, all of the choices are just completely wrong. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, like the, the wrongness is even deeper yet, right? Because... So I, I saw this movie near its release date within a few years of that, and it left like no impression on me. I was like, oh, this is weird and just kind of like this was me even then saying like, oh, this movie is kind of just weird and bad. And I stopped considering it. Um, But but watching it now, I'm like, there's almost initially there's almost something clever about that, because up to this point, the grave robber is kind of our narrator figure, Um, you know, outside of the events of the play, hanging out on the edges, you know, moving the audience along, helping us understand and that almost works as like as like a way that like, oh, that is the figure of the narrator. They do push the plot forward, but then he just becomes a character. He stops being this kind of narratological figure and starts being just another guy in the repo world. And that makes all of his previous actions completely confusing and fundamentally shifts who and what his character is in, in order to give Terrence Zedunik more screen time or something. Uh, I... And I, I really struggle to articulate the extent to which, let, like, let's say maybe you don't, maybe you don't watch a lot of, of opera or you don't watch a lot of um, uh, film musicals, 
you will if you decide to watch this film for the first time you will need someone who has seen it before with you to tell you what's going on and why because the film has no fucking interest in doing that for you <laughs> that like that's that's not what this film is for the film is not there to communicate its story to you um if you if you've seen it for the first time uh you probably don't really understand what happened or 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 importantly why it happened uh and this is this is despite the fact that this film for a film that is like just about 90 minutes has an ungodly amount of plot there are like six stories happening here and none of them are communicated well but dis- despite all of this despite <laughs> This is this this film is like uh for for reasons that I don't think the director or writers really understand this film is super interesting but almost only indirectly because to get the kind of interesting discourse out of it you basically have to work against every artistic choice that the people who put this film together made Yes, yes. The amount of mental gymnastics required here is not inconsiderable. <laughs> um, as I put it in the notes, Darren Lynn Bowsman doesn't know why this film is good. Like he... That, yes. Like there, there is some super interesting, which we will get into. There is some really interesting kind of like criticism or kind of commentary happening in this, which, but you have to work against everything Darren has done to try and <laughs> to to extract that you have to like you know you have to jam your your syringe into the into the skull of this movie corpse to pull out <laughs> the glowing blue liquid of interesting things um yeah we we need to we need to get our Darren Lynn Bowsman and Drina Chrome in order to understand this film uh, uh, do you want do you want to talk about this film as like a cult as cult cinema yeah, and so so this is in in looking into this movie because this movie gets talked about as a cult film a lot. That that is how people describe Repo the Genetic Opera. It's a piece of cult cinema. And cult cinema is such a it's such a loaded term. And it's often like especially like now when we're in an age where if something gets a cult reputation, that means that that movie is going to get a lot of printings, it's going to get a lot of screenings, there are merchandising deals, you could get a documentary you know, made about the making of your film. You know, there's a lot of money in being identified as kind of a cult thing. You know, just look at The Room and Troll 2. The, the, these movies have turned into careers for people because of this cult status. So I went like, I wanted to find what constitutes the repo genetic opera cult. Um, and there's really not, there's really not a lot. Every few years we get like an opinion piece on on some online magazine about why this movie was good or bad or something and there are shadow casts that do kind of the rocky horror treatment but those are very few and and far in between uh you make what i think is the most correct point that this is hamilton for the weird goth crowd (laughs) um yeah this is this is the hamilton of new metal cinema um (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, and it's like i i I, like in a in a way i am kind of like sympathetic to the fact that there probably are people who saw this around the time when it came out 
um, or like just after it came out, and it became a kind of very important cultural touchstone for them. And I totally, I, in a way, I kind of, I do kind of get that, but I am also aware that those people are salvaging something from the work itself that the people who wrote, directed, and made this did not you know you're working against the text itself to recoup something important because just on a formal level just on a kind of structural basic level this this is is so uh, is such a such a mess as to be almost completely incoherent none and mm-hmm. and so for for people who do find it to be kind of like an, a a meaningful uh kind of point of reference it is usually in terms of of stylization it's a, it's an aesthetic meaning rather than an actual uh, or, or or a meaning that doesn't really have any of the content um so which is what makes me say that it's it's like it's an appropriation of an operatic aesthetic without any of the operatic content Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I would, I would just add to that that like it's entirely possible to watch this movie and have have a, a profound and meaningful personal connection that resonates with some aspect of your history and and your condition that that elevates this movie by your estimation to something greater. But but that same thing can be said about any Transformers movie. You know, like that's there. There's something to be said for the idiosyncratic nature of art. It's weird what we connect with sometimes. However, that is that is uh, external to the realm of film criticism. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, t- t- totally. I mean, I w- I was a weird goth kid, right? Like we both were <laughs> when this when this ca- yes. when this came out. <laughs> I was not that type of weird goth kid, though. I wasn't a weird goth theater kid. Um, so, so like I am, I am hugely sympathetic and I think, I think I, I can, I can conceptualize of watching this and having a really good time, but like watching it now, I'm, I'm profoundly, uh, just baffled at, at the series of like ways in which ostensibly professional people took what on the surface is a very cool premise and just like, like Bane with Batman, just, (laughs) just, just put their knee through its spine. (laughs) I would just say that like one, you know, much in the spirit of Tarkovsky's statement earlier, one must cultivate a certain spiritual fortitude that is required to say, Yes, I really enjoy watching this movie, but it's also complete garbage that most people shouldn't watch because it's a waste of their time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we're gonna if we're gonna bring this up, um, if we're gonna talk about some of some of the the the, the problem of calling this cult cinema, um, we need to we need to probably talk about Terence Zadunich. Zadunich. We 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 need to talk about the head of this cult. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so who is Terence and 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 what's going on? Uh, Ter- Terence is uh, clearly a uh, open open quotes musician, close quotes. <laughs> but so so like skipping skipping to the meat of the issue, uh, there there there's kind of this established history that Terence Zedunik is 
allegedly some kind of predator. So, uh, so Terrence plays the grave digger in in the film. He was involved in the writing, very long um, involvement with the development of the film, and a very long involvement after the film's release. I, I think let us use the term allegedly. Um, always fair always and legally recommended. Legally recommended. <laughs> uh, there are um, alleged, uh, you know, that this this guy is allegedly a, a, a creep, um, a a very sexually predatory individual, um, which was cataloged in a series of blogs that were was uh, going around the internet a couple of years ago about someone who'd been uh, written by someone who'd been in a relationship with this person. Uh, and they documented all of, all of the various ways in which this person was uh, abusive, controlling, um, and again, predatory towards particularly um, young female fans of the film. Uh, and I think what I, I don't necessarily think that we should talk a lot about that. That's not necessarily our place. Uh, but I think what agreed what is worth talking about is the fact that you know when something becomes cult cinema um and when it attracts an audience that perhaps <clears throat> that perhaps feels as if the people who made it have made it directly for them, you enter into uh what we can kind of call the problems of the parasocial like if if you really love repo or if repo was very meaningful to you, you don't know. Uh, the people who wrote and directed it. You don't know them. They don't know you. But given the way in which cult cinema depends upon perpetuating this parasocial relationship, it is in their interests for you to think that you could know them and that they made this work of art directly for you. And I think in this context, the problem of the parasocial uh, and having these kind of parasocial relationships with people who are involved in creating art is that it makes us it makes us not very good at engaging with art honestly um and that leads to people being very easy to manipulate by you know musicians who really like preying on young female fans or uh being kind of like sexual and creepy uh q a's naming no names there name i'm not i'm (laughs) i but but you see what I mean? Like like this this idea of like inculcating parasociality actually creates an audience that is less likely to be the kind of critical uh, and aware audience that art genuinely deserves, and that does a disservice to like everybody involved, right? I'm I'm a huge advocate of the idea that you can't really enjoy art if you're not actively engaged with it. I I really don't like the idea that like oh like i just i i put this on and turn my mind off you know and and when i say this i'm not saying that like when when you watch your your favorite like garbage show you should just like be be like oh how does this relate to maoism yeah that's okay cool um no save that for us because our our brains have been irreparably transformed <laughs> um but but to be com- a completely passive viewer and and to actively say no, I'm not engaged, or I'm not interested in any intellectual engagement with the art that I love, isn't really a love of that art. It's it's a it's an aesthetic and experiential thing that's kind of disconnected or that tries to disconnect itself 
from the the actual material conditions of not only the history of that piece of art, but also what it's actively saying and how that statement has changed over the history of that piece. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I think in addition, because I, I, I am, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I am guessing that like probably quite a few people who listen to this will actually really like Repo, which is fine. But what, but what I will it's fine. say... It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and, and maybe there are people who are listening who are like saying, well, maybe getting a little bit irritated with what we're trying to trying to talk through here. But what I will say is that like, um, parasociality is designed to inculcate passivity on the part of the viewer. Uh, and th- we're not going to, like me and you are not going to solve the problem of like, how do we enjoy art made by problematic people? But we have to, rec- oh, no. but we have to recognize that that a parasocial relationship perpetuates the systems that allows those kind of abuses to continue. Right. Uh, systems of 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 uh, of capitalism, of patriarchy, of studio exploitation and monetization of of particularly subcultural aesthetics, right? So parasociality is not, in any sense, making things better. Having a parasocial relationship with someone who's made something that's meaningful to you uh, is is for them great because it means you're easy to monetize. But if you are someone who cares about actually uh, there being less art made by awful people in the world. Like parasociality is their shield, right? It's you will be you will be the audience. You will be the thing that they offer up to to to, to protect themselves. And you know, par- being having these kind of parasocial relationships with filmmakers or composers or musicians or theater directors perpetuates um, all of the systems which enable those abuses in the first place. And it perpetuates them in a small way, maybe. But the the very best thing is to recognize that we do not know the artists that have created the work that we that we that we like and to reckon with the fact that that puts us as audience members in perhaps a very important ethical position right because that means that we cannot be passive because if we do if we are then all of those things which come up uh, we have rendered ourselves kind of incapable of actually confronting them honestly and and truthfully but no so i i 100 agree with what you're saying and i think i think this brings us on to our next point and from it from an interesting and unexpected angle but uh rocky horror picture show is the cult film um it is very close to having a literal cult (laughs) um you know, like in every major city in, in the United States, you will find a, a at least one midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show that happens monthly, if not weekly. Um, these these are regularly attended by people who've been doing the shadow cast for Rocky for, in some cases, decades. You know, there's there's a real long-lived and thriving dedication to that film. I used to be one of the weirdos who would go to Rocky you know, once or twice a month. Um, and so, like, as as someone who escaped the cult horror fandom of Rocky, <laughs> I, I think it contrasts interestingly with what we see here in uh, Repo the Genetic Opera, which is often billed as kind of Rocky Horror Picture Show for a new generation. Yeah. Um I, I think, but I think the, the the comparison again is an aesthetic one, right? It's an aesthetics that's emptied of its content. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And they go, oh, well, look, it's like goth fashion and rock music. Therefore, it must be the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, which doesn't doesn't do, like doesn't actually pay attention to the obviously form and content are kind of dialectically related, you know. But oh, yeah. if all you if all you appropriate and seek to embody is uh, the form of something. It's an opera, therefore it's going to be melodramatic. Um, but so we don't need to worry about writing good songs or you know lyrics. <laughs> you know, if you if you don't actually, the comparison doesn't work unless you only w- allow it to kind of sit on a very surface level. Oh, I I completely agree. Like outside of some tangential aesthetics, there's really no formal or theoretical relationships here, right? Like ro- Rocky Horror is. For for how sloppy the world of Rocky Horror is, it's an incredibly tight, like artistic package, delivering its musical to you, right? What it, the the depth of what it's attempting to communicate, the success of of the conversations it's trying to have, make Rocky Horror just it's, it's you can't even compare these two, you know? Like I, I have seen shadow casts for Rocky Horror who have done a better job than what was filmed for Repo the Genetic Opera. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um and it's and it's not because they have dissimilar aesthetics, it's because um it's because the writing and songs are just <laughs> Rocky Horror uh, Picture good. Show has this thing called music. Uh, humans find it very pleasurable to listen to. I, I studied Repo closely, and I wasn't able to find any of this. Uh, and it has it has uh, well written lyrics and characters whose motivations are, are clear and make sense. And and it doesn't. And you know, it's understandable why its aesthetic choices its aesthetic choices reflect an actual content. Mm-hmm. They're not just they're not just a series of aesthetics. Yeah. I completely agree. However, uh, not to not to look too deeply into our future here, we're going to talk more about the Rocky Horror Picture Show in a few weeks. In due course. <laughs> all, all in due time, Damie. All in due time. All right. Well, we well, have... Yes. <laughs> we have spent a long time. We've spent a long time on talking about this this film. Um, Wait, was this... We should... Were we sublimating an urge to never actually talk about the movie by talking so heavily about its style <laughs> and production? <laughs> you know what? I think, I think we probably were. I think we probably were. However... I think it's I think it's time you and I repossess some discourse. I think we should. And my goodness, I uh, the more I think about the kind of the implicit premise of this film, the more mad I get because god, the premise is so good. <laughs> the premise, well, the first the first plot that's set up is so good. Um this 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 documentary about healthcare systems um uh, so so how how would you explain how would you how would you describe the premise um i don't i don't know if i can scream loud enough without like potentially scaring my neighbors <laughs> to convey so, so like the general shape of the world i think that as far as we can go is to make a general shape of the world of repo because it's it's internally inconsistent you know, the, the, a lot of people say like, oh, that's a plot hole when it's not actually a plot hole. It's bad writing. But this this movie, like the writing is so bad, there are plot holes everywhere. Um, 
in what we have here is a world where um, you can, I think, readily buy replacement organs. And if you've got enough money, you can readily buy upgrades uh, that are acquired or made in a way that I'm not quite sure about. And there's this there's chemical called Zydrate, uh, which is either an illegal street drug needed to maintain these implants or part of the implant process, and also an illegal street drug. Um, there's... And <laughs> Paris Hilton is in the movie. Um, Giles from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer universe got sucked in a portal... And now he's trying to, one, get back to Buffy and the rest of the Scoobies in order to stop the head vampire who's going to destroy the prom. Uh, but he, in order to do that, he has to stop Roddy Largo from being a Shakespearean character. I, and I, I'm tr I'm on honestly, this is not a bit, everyone out there. If you're listening to this and you're like, wow, Ash, this bit is not funny. Hashtag cringe. I am legitimately trying to figure out what happened in this film. Okay, so the the premise that I'm referring to as being really good is sometime in the future a a there is a a, a deadly plague of sudden fatal organ failures. A uh a subsidiary of the Wayland Utani Corporation develops a technique for organ transplants. These are extremely costly, so you can get organs on installment plans. Like anything that you buy on credit, organs are liable for repossession. Like that that just on the surface is a perfectly solid, like body horror premise. Oh, oh totally, um, totally. You know, that that work that's that's a you know, there's some good there's some good body horror implicit in that. There's some good horror as political or sociological commentary in that. Um, you know what? You could make you could make it a fine film about that. The only problem is that we decide then to add in literally six more plots um, and develop none of them, and then do it all in ninety minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but but the the, the big the kind of big thing that I think we can talk about first is the relationship between bodies and ownership. Because basically this, 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 the, the very origins of the Necromerchant's debt is um, a friend of one of the writers back in the late nineties was going through bankruptcy. And so the idea is, well, what if you could sell your organs? And so the extension of neoliberalism, this this kind of neoliberal politics, which sees everything as an asset, is to basically turn subjectivity itself, turn the body into an asset. You know, and that's a fine thing to like make movies about. You know, it's like it's 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 only intensified since then. Um, but like the very first thing that I thought about was that um, pharmaceutical company slideshow that that went public of like. Is curing disease good for business? Yep. From because from a business point of view, from a, as a bit business model, Gene Co. is about the management of problems. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like life as a live service where you continue. Where you, it's just another subscription <laughs> that you've got to make payments on. And I, I love that. I think that's a really cool idea. 
It's a shame that that idea never appears in Repo the Genetic Opera. <laughs> oh man, but no, I, I totally agree. There are there are there are glimpses. There, there there are little little tiny signifiers of conversations that we could be having. It's just the, one of the things I was was working towards in my pricey was that this movie it's there's no bite here you know it, it makes some kind of like clumsy aesthetic gesture towards the Sackler family and the ongoing opioid addiction problem here in the United States and and its conclusion is that like it's it's maybe an illegal drug or it's maybe a wonder cure or it's it's maybe an, an excuse for an actor to allegedly have a makeout scene with Paris Hilton allegedly um, allegedly trademark but Ah, ah, this fucking movie it doesn't like it doesn't actively pursue any of the conversations it's trying to have or or it does so in such like in such like a bizarre way that the implications of it are just never clear mm-hmm. so uh let's let's talk about nathan yes um, yes yes okay giles from from buffy yes uh anthony head uh star <laughs> stage and screen <laughs> who is in 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 this film he's in this he's in this film and anthony head this this cardigan wearing softly spoken englishman is playing a murderous repossessions expert who enjoys brutally torturing people to extract their organs in in casting which i assure you makes complete sense <laughs> I, so this is the one thing about this movie i like and it's like you know because anthony head's got his wild side right he got to exercise some of that and a few episodes on buffy he he's done rocky horror uh you know related things like he, he's got it in him he's most known for buffy which i think there's a lot of dissonance there it is weird to see giles like singing about mutilating people um, but you know, like I, every time Anthony Head is on screen, it just like in, in the back of my head, I'm like wondering what would happen if like Optimus Prime showed up to the county fair tractor pull, and and there's some farmer with a half working John Deere and a sentient robot from outer space engaged in in, in a contest of strength, and it's just mm-hmm. like Anthony Head is like he's a head above everything else in this movie. Like he he's he's incredibly good, but like so the the premise is. Nathan Nathan had a wife who had a had a serious health condition. She was pregnant. Something went wrong. Um, she she died in childbirth to um, giving birth to a daughter, uh, Shiloh, who also has the same condition. Um, and and as a result of gr- grief, uh, Nathan has essentially been Munchausen by proxying his own daughter. For the last seventeen years, by poisoning her, microdosing, microdosing poison in order to keep her inside. Um, now, the implications of this are, are never revealed in the narrative itself, but are saved and for like a twist ending right at the end, which means that most of the motivation of this character, and actually kind of unpicking that that very very. Uh, toxic and appropriative relationship that or like like deeply oedipal and obsessive controlling relationship between a father and daughter 
the film just forgets about for, for, for huge portions of the runtime. And this is exactly what you were talking about, right? There are some really interesting ideas, but to get at them, you basically have to like discount anything the writer or director tried to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, d- discounting everything that has to happen in this movie, I-, I think is really important to the viewing of this movie. Um, yeah, yeah, there's almost like two competing parallel structures within the plot itself. You, you've got Nathan, the father of Shiloh, and their incredibly conflicted relationship, right? Like, like Nathan has clearly been driven over the edge by the loss of his wife and how Roddy Largo, the CEO of this company, has manipulated and abused events in order to kind of make Nathan, who invented Zydrate, his like servant, essentially. And there's a, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to work through in that space. You know, like, like Shiloh's character really could have stood out a lot more in that structure. But then there's another structure, which is essentially King Lear. Like, and, and that is just completely baffling with Roddy Largo and his three, like, fail son heirs. One's a failed daughter, I guess who are competing for the Roddy Largo Co. fortune. And, and ne'er in between shall the two meet, you know, like the, these, these are freestanding structures within the movie and it causes so much dissonance. Yeah. Cause basically a big, the big crux of this is that Roddy Largo wants Shiloh to inherit the company. So, Ownership and family are this kind of super, like, intense, discursive knot that the film is sort of circling around. But the the writing does not know how to simplify this down or to clarify what it's trying to say. And so you end up with this sort of, like, weird Shakespearean disaster with Paul Sorvino in it. <laughs> <laughs> the father to Paris, to, to Paris Hilton and Bill Mosley in, in some genuinely just mind-breaking casting uh, on the one hand. And then you have this kind of Munchausen by proxy, uh, like uh, very kind of classic Gothic imprisonment narrative happening at the same time. Um, uh, so so these, these discourses of ownership and, and family get very, very intermingled into, into some super interesting ways. But the film doesn't really know how to, how to kind of land any of this in a way that is substantive. Oh, no, no, completely. And like the whole issue of a company being able to repossess your organs violently in the street. It's never really grappled with in the movie. It's just kind of a thing that's happening. Which is, in one hand, that's that's so deeply American, you know? But I, I can completely see a series of cultural events that lead to a situation where, like, Purdue Pharmaceutical can behead you in the street and, and, and the news is like, uh, uh, a Pursue Pharmaceutical adjacent head removal incident happened today. <laughs> yeah. But, but the, movie, the movie never takes those things seriously. In, in not seriously in, in a grave way. It doesn't need to be somber, but seriously in a way where it understands the weight of what it's wielding. And and this is the problem, right? Because it's a film that's very interested in how it looks, but it's not interested in making its its commentary or making its content like um, 
bite deliberately. Like, this is why I said earlier that Bowsman doesn't really know why this film is good. The film is good not because of him, but in spite of him. And that's why this film is a complete mess. Yeah. Because what what you have to do if you enjoy this is you have to kind of basically do salvage work. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's, that's what I think think we're doing here. We're trying to do some salvaging and going like, none of this is well explained. None of this is is clearly laid out. None, none of the narrative choices really work. But th- th- there, are, there are like fragments of ideas here. Um, do, you want, do you want to talk about, do you want to talk about Zydrate, which comes in a little blue vial? In a little blue vial? <laughs> and you load it, you load it in the barrel of a gun like a battery. Um, hang on. <laughs> we get, I made to workshop that next one a little, I think. Uh, it's, it's the best song in the entire film because it actually has a hook. Um, and it actually feels like a song, <laughs> even it, uh, and that doesn't seem to be saying, saying a great, great amount. So, okay. 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 So, so Zydrate is a very powerful pre-surgical anesthetic. Um, that is officially licensed and heavily controlled by GeneCo um, as a way of getting people into the surgeries that have become increasingly elective and kind of like a fashion statement. But at the same time, it is also a black market substance that can be sold more cheaply by the gravedigger who extracts it from the skulls of corpses, even though it's got the same name. Um, and like, <laughs> were, they, <laughs> were they trying? Do you think were they trying to make a point about the opioid crisis in American healthcare? So, so, so the thing is, like, this is this is completely inconsistent, right? Because Zydrate is is all of these things, which which do line up very well with the opioid crisis here in the states. Right. It's 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 simultaneously this legal thing that doctors will prescribe you for literally whatever, uh, because there's a lot of money behind prescribing this to people. Um, And it's also something that is, you know, thriving in this kind of, you know, gray market, this illegal space uh, for for very similar reasons. Um, But the movie like. So who takes Zydrate? It's the daughter of. Roddy Largo, the guy who controls Zydrate, shouldn't she just be able to get this legally? Cinemasins ding like. Um, no, no, this is this is such an important problem. Which is why do the grave dig- uh, Why does the grave digger and um, Amber Sweet meet one another? And the film goes well. It's because she's looking for an illegal high, but it's like her family literally controls the entire drug supply. Why is she going to some underground dealer? This was just an excuse to give um, to give Terrence a chance to like make out with Paris Hilton, right? Oh, I allegedly agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but no, like, like, so, so, here, like, this is like this movie just keeps making me angry, right? Because this is this is like a, 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 if we are making an analogy to like OxyContin and pursue Phar- Purdue Pharmaceutical and the Sackler family with the Largos. This is something that has like ruined millions of lives, 
you know, there, there is a pile of bodies that reaches straight to God's doorstep that the Sackler family are responsible for. And, and the, the, this movie makes it a quirky song for Terrence Zadunik. And, and the quirkiness isn't the problem. The, the complete lack of awareness of, of what you're handling is, is the problem here. Because we, we've got seeds of very powerful commentary. You know, because in, in America, we code opioid addiction as something that happens to poor people. You know, you become addicted to opioids if you're in poverty. It's a thing that happens over there. But in fact, it happens to wealthy people. It happens to people in the quote-unquote alleged middle class, right? It's all over society. It soaks it. And this movie flirts with these ideas. It winks towards them. But it doesn't have a spine. There's no soul. There's no heart. You know? It's just, oh, my God. Like, this movie. There's, a, there's another problem, actually, here, which is that this movie gets the causality wrong as well. Mm-hmm. So, so like, Zydrate is uh, explained in the film as an anesthetic that you take before surgery, but surgery and Zydrate itself are both presented as being highly addictive. Mm-hmm. Now, if they were actually trying to do some social commentary, it would make a lot more sense and would actually give this whole thing a lot more bite if Zydrate is something that is prescribed after surgery because this is what happens with opioid addiction, right? People, people, you know, you might be working in a warehouse and you pull your back, you go to the doctor. You know, in order to make you feel better, you need to take the oxy, right? And it'll let you keep working. And addiction escalates from, from a point like that. But so it would make more sense to be like, oh, well, you wanted the newest look. So you had the surgery, then you got addicted to, the, to the, this downer anesthetic thing. But they, they set it up so that like, you do the surgery after like nothing, nothing about this makes sense when you actually stop and think about it for, 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 for like 30 seconds. Like, you know, when this movie was, was finally like cut, right. When, when, when they, when they fired that last edit and, and hit, and hit the print button, like every single copy of, of society and the spectacle just burst into flames. Like this is, Oh my god, this fucking movie, man. Even like the th- so much is frustrating me here, but even if this movie would have if this movie would have been wrong about the conclusions it was trying to reach, right? If it would have done some moralizing about addiction and just had an incorrect thing, then then we would be able to to engage it. You know, like I feel like I'm wrestling a phantom. Like I'm I'm trying I'm in a boxing ring going after something that has no form. What can I say about a movie that is is so contextually diaphanous that any attempt to to speak to this film blows it away like little like little uh, seeds in the wind? All we are, John, is dust in the wind. <laughs> it's so deeply kind of frustrating because. Like there is, there are, there are the the seeds that are there, the the shards, the fragments, are something that is like really timely and actually interesting, but everything is kind of buried beneath repetitive music, Bowsman's like hyper frantic editing style, uh, and a very deliberate kind of aesthetic, which just leaves you feeling like a little bit hollow at the end of it. Yes. 
<laughs> um, deeply, deeply hollow. Um, almost as if there was never anything inside to begin with. Nevertheless, this is a gothic piece of work. Well, what what do you what do you mean by that? So I think I think it would be tempting to create a, a canon, if you will, right? To to canonize and decanonize certain texts as as qualifying for being worthy of inclusion. You know, you know, because because we we've covered hundred and eighty something movies now on the show, uh, you know, give or take. And it would be tempting to kind of carve out some kind of aesthetic territory, right? And be like, oh, this is a gothic Marxist film. This somehow fits our, this goes in the Criterion vault um, that actually is beneath the horror vanguard crypt for the record. Um, everyone at Criterion works for us and that's factually true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is why Criterion releases nothing but uh, copies of Repo the Genetic Opera. But it would it would be tempting to do that, right? It would be tempting to to carve that. However, the the actual series of texts that qualify is an endless expanse that constantly redefines its own identity. You know, just looking at the history of Gothic texts, it's nothing but a chain of people writing garbage and ripping off other people who wrote garbage, and and some of those were canonized into the realm of worthy of praise, while others have yet to be. Uh, and and that means no this counts this works you can do these conversations about films like repo the genetic opera even though this film in particular makes it very difficult because it's hard to it's hard to do the thing where it's like oh in this scene this happens which lets us talk about this because in the very next scene they contradict or negate it yes uh it it, it is a film that is is like almost indirectly running into some ideas but this is uh it it feels in a way too enamored with the possibilities of its own aesthetic to actually understand the ways in which that aesthetic could be directed towards actual content 100% but there is this there is this kind of like point that maybe we should close out on which is something that like increasingly is becoming a gothic motif or or a a uh, kind of cultural anxiety which is the role and status of debt repossessions depend upon debt right um the naturalization of repossession of putting it down to the very level of the the flesh and blood of our physical being um is a a territorialization of capitalist realism it's an advancement of that the gray horizon of possibility where even yourself even your organs even your viscera become an asset class something that can be managed and thus debt becomes not just a kind of economic thing but a wager against your own future you know it's about the financialization of life and this is indirectly something the Saw films that Bowsman directed <laughs> play with as well, right? Yeah, totally. It's about the it. It's about you know, it's about live or die. Make your choice, right? And your choice can only be made within the logic of the market. How much are you willing to give up? How much are you willing to sacrifice to protect the asset class that is your own existence? No, this is this is completely correct, and and just 
linguistically, I think it's important how we, we approach debt, right? There's so much talk of the sanctity of debt. You know, can debt be absolved? You know, even possession has this kind of almost Catholic quality to it. You know, where we, we naturalize debt not as not in the same way that we natu- we are naturalizing climate disaster, where it's just like this is just a thing that happens now. Debt is naturalized as something sacred. You know, you must ask for debt forgiveness. You must ask for debt forbearance. You know, the the, the terminology here is is very religious, and it, and it causes us to I think cognitively see debt separate from our material conditions. But the, one of the things about repo that is very interesting for me. Is it, it's the same thing as RoboCop, in a sense. Uh, a RoboCop wasn't a look at the dystopian future. It was a dystopian representation of a present. And Repo is the same way. This isn't a dystopian future. It's a dystopian. It's a futuristic look at a at a dystopian present. You know, we don't have Repo agents that can you know tear your liver out on the street corner. Uh, but we do live in a world where it's entirely possible for a repossession agent to take away your entire life. If you live in a community where you're dependent on having a car and a repossession agent takes away your car, how are you going to get groceries? How are you going to go to work? How are you going to live anymore? You know, we have medical debt that is literally the exact same structure as what's going on in Repo the Genetic Opera. You can't afford to have organs anymore. Good luck, pal. And like, this is, so I made this comment in the notes, but your car is a liver. You know, like the, the material world around you isn't separate from your internal world. You know, we have a society structured in such a way where like, you just look at what's going on with COVID right now. Like we could stop this. COVID, COVID is not a natural phenomenon. This is not a force of nature. You know, it's, it's not a mysterious act of God's love that this plague is ravaging the world and especially the United States. It's a political decision. It's an economic decision. And in so many ways, Repo nods towards these things, even though that nod is kind of confusingly aimed in a vague direction. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I really, really couldn't. And I really, I really wish that I liked this film more than I do. Um, I, I, but really what I ultimately wish is that there was, behind, like behind the, behind the costume, behind the mask, behind behind the appearance i wish that there was you know if you if you peel away the skin of this film like all there is is this kind of like uh hollow shell that kind of collapses in on itself you know it's the appearance of something meaningful that vanishes into just like uh a kind of bloody uh kind of spurt from a severed limb but that's there's nothing else to it there's nothing else there and when you realize the extent to which uh, the Gothic and horror provide us with perhaps the most accurate phenomenology, the the, uh, the most accurate representation of what does it feel like to, to live under the ever-evolving uh, and shifting conditions of capitalism and the ways in which it steals the life from our very bodies, you can only look at this film as a disappointment. I would really love to add something to that, but that is such a way to end the episode. <laughs> well, uh, do you do you have any any anything else you would like to add for our conclusion, our little uh, our little operatic ending here? We, oh, you know, we missed an opportunity to sing this entire episode to our audience. 
Um, and also, in, and also, I have to introduce the twist ending, which is that I've secretly been poisoning all of the <laughs> listeners um, because there was nothing wrong with you. Um, the medicine that we were providing with our discourse was actually just microdosed poison. <laughs> um, and now, now um, I'm going to get shot by Paul Sorvino. And to be honest, what better way to close out our first episode of 2022? <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. And if you would like uh, bonus episodes, extra posts, all the wonderful goodness, you can find those on horrorvanguard.com forward backslash one of the slashes. Horror, no, not. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Starting off the, the new year wonderfully, patreon.com forward slash horrorvanguard. Uh, find us on Twitter. You can you can find us in a graveyard attempting to extract Andrina Chrome uh, in order to sell it to Roddy Largo or or maybe Paris Hilton or maybe no one. Um, I really I'm just gonna go wander the woods until I find a meaning. So I'll I'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.